Hello and welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh sermon messages uploaded weekly. For the next five weeks, we'll be listening to the Guardrails series presented by Andy Stanley of North Point Church. Andy uses guardrails as a brilliant metaphor for the way that biblical principles can keep us physically, emotionally, and spiritually protected. We hope that you'll find this series both instructional and inspiring. Thanks for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Every once in a while, um, and maybe you do this too, I, I wonder um, what I would have, what I would own, what I would have, if I didn't know what everybody else owned and what everybody else had. I wonder sometimes how much influence what you have has on what I have. And I, I also wonder sometimes what I would want if I didn't know what everybody else already had. And I also wonder sometimes how much more money I would have saved if I didn't know what you spent yours on. And if I didn't know what everybody else has spent their money on. And then sometimes um, in the deep recesses of my soul, I wonder how much more money I would have given away to people who have less than I have if I didn't know what the people who have more than I have had. My problem is this, I know too much. I, I know too much about what others have and I know too much about what they have that I don't. And the interesting thing about me, not you, is that this information makes me dangerously discontent. In fact, this, this information has the potential to take me off into, you know, off a cliff on one side or into a wall on the other side. It lures me toward the edge of financial ruin. It lures me toward the edge of too much credit card debt. It lures me into making decisions that normally I wouldn't make and decisions I would regret, owning things that later on I wish I could sell and get half the money back I wasted. It lures me in, in really dangerous situations um, financially. And specifically, it feeds this, this internal appetite. You know, Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. That's the nature of an appetite. You, you satisfy them for a few minutes and then you're over at the refrigerator going, hey, is there anything else in here to eat? You never fully and finally satisfy an appetite. And my appetite for stuff, it's an appetite and it grows and it's never fully and finally satisfied. So basically, I think I need counseling. <clears throat> and I should probably make an appointment for most of you. Isn't that true? Today we're talking about guardrails. This is our fourth in the series on guardrails. And in case you haven't been here, or in case you just always wanted to know, what is the official definition of a guardrail? Here it is. Some of you've memorized it by now. It's a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. A system that's created to keep vehicles from straying into danger, straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. As we've learned, and you know this now, guardrails are never placed in the danger zone. They're placed in the what? The Thank you. Yes, the guardrails are always placed in the safety zone. The guardrails are designed to minimize damage. There's going to be some damage, but it minimizes the damage. We've said that guardrails are designed to direct us and to protect us. But the point of this series is that the highway is not the only place we need guardrails. In fact, you would have avoided your greatest regret. You could have avoided your greatest regret if you had had Guardrails, maybe some financial guardrails, some moral guardrails, some relational guardrails, maybe some guardrails 
in your marriage, maybe some professional guardrails. When we talk about guardrails in this capacity, we're talking about personal rules of behavior or personal standards of behavior. You have yours, I have mine. I don't have any right in the world to tell you what yours should be, but I encourage you to set some up. So these are personal rules, or basically it's a standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. A standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. That is, that I decide how far in this direction I'm gonna drift. I decide how far in this direction I'm gonna allow myself to drift. And when I begin to drift in unhealthy or dangerous directions, it sets off alarm bells in my own heart, my own soul. And I go, wait a minute, Andy, you're moving too close. You're moving too far away. The point of a guardrail is actually to light up our conscience before we hurt ourselves and before we hurt other people. A guardrail is designed to light up your conscience. It just, you know, alarm bells go off before you hurt yourself and before you hurt other people. So today, I want us to talk specifically about financial guardrails. Now, if you're not a Christian, what I'm about to say is so important, so I hope you'll listen real carefully. If you're not a Christian, we're going to look at some things Jesus says. And if you're not a Jesus follower, Jesus has no authority over you. So consequently, please don't feel like I'm trying to get you to do something you don't want to do or trying to guilt you into something because I have no authority over your life. You're a free agent, do whatever you want to do. And But for those of us who are Christians, um, we've already signed on. It's too late. Okay, You have to do this if you're a Christian. Now, just to let you off the hook, most Most Christians don't do what Jesus is going to ask us to do, okay? So you're in the majority, but you may be in danger, okay? Because as a Jesus follower, the whole point of following Jesus is we say, yes, now what is it you'd like for me to do? But if you're not a Christian, here's the other thing. It's a great time to have tuned in or or to be here because what Jesus suggests is something we should all do anyway, but you don't have to. And here's the last thing I'll say about that. If you're not a religious person or maybe you're part of another religion, you're not a Christian, my opinion, you should always be curious about what Jesus says about anything, okay? Whether whether or not you think he's the son of God, you should at least be curious, what did Jesus have to say about that? You don't have to do it, but I, I would think that you would want to know. And then the last thing is this, it's so interesting as a pastor and as you know, as a bunch of churches, when people come in with challenges in their lives or when they want us to talk to their talk you know to them about their kids, or they come in and you can tell they want to talk about something that's kind of dark and they're afraid and maybe they've never told anybody before. Did you know that in most of those instances it has something to do with sex or money? That it's either directly or indirectly related to sex or money. But the fascinating thing is this that those are the two areas of New Testament teaching that are most disregarded. That the two areas in the New Testament where Jesus taught and his apostles taught, the two areas where people have the most, have the greatest inclination to say, I don't want to listen to that, has to do with what the New Testament teaches about sex and what the New Testament teaches about money. That's why what we're going to talk about today is so important. And yet there's something potentially on the inside of you that's going to want to stiff arm it. And I understand that, especially if you're not a religious person, <laughs> because word on the street is the church is against sex and the church just wants my money. I mean, that, that's our rep- reputation, right? Now, last week we spent the whole time talking about sex. So if you missed the last week, you need need to go back and listen to last week's message. You can find it on our apps. You can find it on our websites. It's easy to find, but you need to go back because last week I said, look, the church isn't against sex. God isn't against sex. God created it. Remember my little story, you know, once upon a time there was no sex. And then God said, I have an idea. The angel said, what is it? He said, you wouldn't understand. So God, (laughs) God came up with this. So the church, any church that's embracing the teachings of Jesus specifically, 
or is trying to be a church that follows the leading of God, can't be against sex, good grief, God created it. And when it comes to money, the church doesn't need your money and the church doesn't want your money or the church shouldn't because here's the deal. Jesus didn't want your money. God doesn't want your money, doesn't need your money, but God wants something for you as it relates to money. And as we're gonna discover, Jesus wants something for you as it relates to money. And any good church that's trying to organize around the teachings of Jesus wants something for you as it relates to your money. They don't just want your money. Now, when I say financial guardrails, specifically what I'm talking about is not how to stay out of debt. There's lots of programs to help you do that. This is not about how to you know, avoid bankruptcy. That's a good thing to avoid, but this is not about that. This is talking about something much, much deeper. In fact, you, can be, you could be completely out of debt. You could have lots and lots of money in the bank and still be in a ditch financially. You could have all of your, you could have your house paid off, your cars paid off, college tuition saved up, or your kids are done with that and no, you know, college debt, no educational debt. You could, you could be golden financially. And according to Jesus, that's why you need to pay attention. According to Jesus, you could still have run your financial car off the road and put it in a ditch because Jesus goes to, when it comes to money, the heart of the matter. And that's why it's so fabulous. If you're a Christian, tune in. You gotta do this, okay? If you're not a Christian, hey, you get to decide. But here is what Jesus said. Here's what he said. One day he's teaching, he says this. No one, that would be everyone, no one, no one can serve two masters. To which when I read that, I shrug and say, I don't even have one master. What are you talking about? But see, Jesus is shrewd. And he's baiting us in. And he says this, either, talking about masters, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. To which we say, what are you even talking about? You know, one, other, devote, despise. Maybe you have us confused with someone else. Now, the little Greek word that's translated master is a very interesting little Greek word. It, because when we think about master, we think about a boss. This wasn't a boss. This was someone who owned someone. And Jesus is saying, this is an issue of possession or ownership. That is, you can't be possessed except by one thing. Now, you've met some people that you might have felt like we're possessed by multiple things, but that's not what we're talking about today. He says, you, can't, you can only be owned or be the possession of one person or one entity or one thing. You can only have one owner. Again, we say, well, that's fascinating. It's interesting. It's logical, but nobody and nothing owns me. And besides, what are you talking about? And we would expect him to say, you, can, you know, nobody can serve two masters. You can only serve God or Satan. But Jesus doesn't say that because Jesus is shrewd and Jesus is right because he's Jesus. And here's what he says. He says, you cannot serve God and money or God and wealth. In fact, the little Greek word can mean stuff. You can't serve God and your stuff. You can't serve God and money. Now, this is so fascinating because where he goes from here underscores this very, very important point. And if you're a Christian, you gotta listen to this, okay? Here's what Jesus is saying. That for Jesus, for Jesus, the primary issue, the primary issue regarding money for Jesus isn't the money. The primary issue when it comes to money for Jesus is mastery, control, ownership. 
The question that Jesus wonders about as it relates to our personal lives, if you're a Jesus follower and if you're a Christian and if you're not a Christian, you should consider this as well is this. Do we have money or does money have us? Do we own it or does it own us? Do we possess and use it or does it possess and use us? And the reason Jesus followers need financial guardrails is that money and what money promises, money and what money promises is the chief competitor for your heart and for your heart and for my heart. That money and what money promises is the number one competitor for ownership over my heart with God. And without guardrails of some sort, without guardrails of some sort, you may never declare bankruptcy. You may never have overwhelming credit card debt. You may be so good with your money. I mean, you may, you may need to be the person that teaches classes on how to manage money. But his point is simply this. Without guardrails, you're either going to veer off the cliff of, consu- of consumption or you're going to wreck your financial future into the wall of hoarding. One is unbridled desire, consume, 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 upgrade, 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 upgrade. The other is unbridled fear. What if I don't have enough? What if we don't have enough? What if I don't have enough? What if we don't have enough? And the root cause for both of these is the same thing. And it's a word that we really don't like. It's a word that we can't see in the mirror. And it's the word greed, greed. Now, some time ago, a bunch of us memorized the definition of greed. I made it up, but I like it because it's easy to remember and I need things to be easy to remember. And so I'm gonna give you the first part of the definition and I'm gonna see if you can remember the last word. Greed is simply this. Greed is the assumption, it's all for my consumption. Yes, three people got that right. I feel so good. I think everybody, everybody watching the live stream got it home. We could hear you as well. That's right. So what is greed? Greed isn't mysterious. Greed isn't, you know, some miserly guy counting his gold, you know, and he never got married, never had kids because he's going to spend it all on himself. I mean, that we sort of relegate greed to, to someone we don't know and someone will never be. But greed is simply an assumption. The assumption that if it's placed in my hands, it's for me. If it shows up in my checking account, it's for me. If it goes into my 401k, it's for me. If it's part of my paycheck or my bonus, it's for me. If it's part of my inheritance, it's for me. You know, if I win the lottery, obviously it was God's will. What are the odds of that? It's for me. It is an assumption. It's an assumption. It's an assumption that it's all for my consumption. And if I choose out of the compassion that occasionally bubbles up in me. If I choose to give some of what is designed for me to someone else, I hope God's watching and I'm gonna give in slow motion in case he gets distracted. Did you see that, right? That's what some of y'all do with the bucket. You know, most of you pass it real quick and every once in a while there's excuse me coming out slow, you know, kind of a thing, right? It's the assumption that it's all for my consumption. Now, it's consume now, spend. Consume later, hoarding. Consume now, it's for me, spend. It's consume later, it's because I'm a hoarder. So, but either way, it's for me, it's for me now, it's for me later. And here's, here's the tragedy, and you've never thought about it this way, I understand, because who has time to think about this stuff? When you live that way, whether you're a Christian or not, or even if you're part of another religion, when you live that way, you are living as if there is no God. You're living as if all there is to this life is this life. 
You're living as if you might as well, as Solomon says, and Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, his whole point was, if all there is to this life is this life. That's why Ecclesiastes is hard for us to understand. Basically saying under the sun, that's his phrase, under the sun that is in this life, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. And when it's over, it's over. And who cares what your kids think about you when you're gone? You're gone, okay? Who cares about your legacy? What's a legacy? You're gone. And all the people who have a bad attitude about you because you hoarded it all and consumed it all, who cares? Because one day they're gone as well. So eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. All there is to this life is this life. If that's what you believe, then eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. But if there is something in you, if there is something in you, even if it's not the Christian version, if there's something in you, that you just have this suspicion, there has to be more to this life. And there has to be something beyond this life. Then you dare not allow your life to be driven by consumption or hoarding because you're living as if there is no God. It's about me now or it's about me later. But then something interesting happens to all of us at some point. Trouble comes along. Trouble that you created or maybe trouble somebody else created. Trouble that you created because your spending got out of control or you bought too much house or you leased too much car or you know you got too many loans, you know, educationally, educationally related loans. But something happens that you created or maybe there's financial trouble that somebody else caused. Somebody laid you off. Somebody lied to you. A partner took the money and ran, had nothing to do with you. But either way, do you know what we do? Even if we're not very religious, do you know what we do when suddenly we find ourselves with financial trouble? We do the strangest thing. We pray. It may be a on your way to the bank whispered prayer, or it may be flat out on the floor. Oh God, my God, my God. It's Andy. You have not heard from me in a long time. Hello. I have a cross and a star of David and a rabbit's foot. And a what, I, you know, what do I, I, I just need your attention, you know? We pray. And, and, and here's what a prayer that is a related to a financial crisis is. Whether you created it or somebody else created it, this is important. When you pray, here's what you're praying. You're saying, dear God, I would like to invite you in to my finances because I have a problem. And they'll come right this way. Let me explain my problem in case you have it. This is an invitation for God to get involved with your money. Whether it's you need a job or you need a break or you need a consolidation loan or you need mercy at work, whatever it is, it's God, I'm inviting you into this area of my life. God, I may have chosen the wrong master. So here's my question if you're a Christian and here's my you know, concern if you're not. If you think, if you think that you would pray and invite God in to your finances, if there was a problem, why don't you go ahead and invite him in now before there's a problem? Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you invite him to be the master now? Because you know, if things get out of control, you know, whether you're a praying person or not, you're gonna pray that God would get involved if things go the wrong way. So, the guardrails or the guardrail, I'm just really gonna give you one suggestion. The guardrail against greed, the way that you invite God in now before there's a tragedy, the way that you set yourself up for success, whether you have a lot of money or a little bit of money, the way that you do that is by reprioritizing. This is what Jesus teaches. And I'm gonna show you where he says it in just a minute. If you are living like most people, your finances look like this. This is what it looks like to be mastered by money. Here's why I say that. 
live, save, give. I'm just gonna live and spend my money on me. And if I have a plan at work, I may be saving along the way. And then if there's any leftover or if I feel really compassionate or if there's a flood or a tsunami or an earthquake or there's somebody in my community that's in need, then I'll give if I have some leftover. But I'm gonna live, save, give. Me first, me second, everybody else, including what God's doing in the world through the church, third. When you live this way, you are mastered because you are living as if there's no more to this life than this life. You are living as if God has no interest or no idea what's going on in your life financially. This is how most people live. They live, they save, and then they give. Jesus comes along as we're gonna see in a minute and he's gonna say, if you want me to be the master of your life, you have to embrace the way I see the world and my values. And when you do, you're gonna flip this over. This is how you master your money. You give first, you save second, and you live on the rest. You give first, somebody else first. You save second and you live on the rest. Now. Whether you are a Christian or not, and whether you ever give any money to this church or not, I'm just telling you, you do this and you will send me a thank you note later. I I ran into a gentleman this morning. He said, Andy, I remember the first time that you taught this. And we were talking about, I said, that was nine years ago. He said, yes. And it had a profound impact on my life. I'm just telling you, this works and this came from Jesus. Now, whenever the preacher talks about money, everybody gets nervous. You should get nervous, okay? So I'm thinking, okay, how do I convince these people I love and these people that if I knew that I would love, how do I convince them this isn't about me? This isn't about a specific local church. This is what it means to follow Jesus. So I I came up with, with this illustration. And this is absolutely true. When my children were young, I have three children. When they were young, they're 20 months apart. You know, the first one, 20 months later, the second one, 20 months later, the third one, we did not plan it that way, but it just all worked out. We were busy, 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 busy in those early years. So we had three kids. And when they were old enough to understand, we put three jars in all of their rooms. And we labeled these three jars, give, save, and live. And I taught my kids as soon as they could understand, when you get an allowance, when you do chores, you get money, grandmama gives you money, granddaddy gives you money. Sometimes grandmama didn't even know granddaddy gave you money. Grandparents are weird like that. When you get money, we want you to put 10% in here. We want you to put 10% there. And then that's bubble gum. And let's go to the drugstore and let's go to the toy store. That's your money. You can do anything you want to with that money. But the first money, we're gonna split it up nickels and quarters and dimes so you can figure this out. It's kind of a math lesson without it being a math lesson, you know. 10% give, save, live. This one's gonna go up and down. This one's gonna go up and down, mostly down. And this one, you're gonna watch this jar fill up. Now, here's my question for you. Why in the world would the preacher teach his kids to give first, save second, and live on the rest? Is it because I want the church to get my children's money? No, I could have just taken their money. I could have gone in there at night. I could have gone in there at night and just emptied it all into a bag. And the next morning I'm like, I don't know, tooth fairy, you know, I don't know what somebody came in there and stole your money. You know, I don't know what happened, right? No, that's not, I, I, is it that the church needed their money? You know, honey, you had to pay the electric bill. I need dollar and 70 cents. We, we need that. Don't even put it in the jar right here in the pastor's hand. No, it's not because we needed their money. It, 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 I'm telling you why. I did not, and I do not want my children to be mastered by money because I know where that leads. We all know to some extent where that leads. This is the key to financial independence. 
Independence from the belief that life equals stuff. People who live as if life equals stuff live as if there is no God. And here's the thing, come on, no matter what you have, you are always discontent, always. There is no amount of stuff that makes you completely content. Why? Because it's an appetite. And when you're driven by your appetite, unhealthy things happen. And let me just tell you, okay, just a heads up, 99% of you, probably 100%, but let's say 99% of you, 99% of you are gonna run out of time before you run out of stuff. Not 100%, most of you, probably all of you, you are gonna die and there's gonna be a whole lot of stuff left over. You know what that means? It means you lived as if life was stuff. It's not, your life is your time. Your stuff is your stuff. Why would you live as if life is stuff and why would you allow your stuff to master you and control you. And I didn't want my kids to grow up that way. I didn't want them to grow up thinking that way. It it, it results in financial independence in the sense that it's independence from a lifestyle that relegates God to emergencies. God, you know, you stay over there in the corner and if I need you, I'll get you. I don't want my kids living that way. I want them to invite God into every single area of their life, including their finances. Independence from this, it's really independence from a life independent of God. That's what this habit does. This habit ensures that you don't try to live your life independent of God because for the rest of my children's life, for the rest of your 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 life, money is gonna compete for first place and money and stuff is gonna compete for your heart and for my heart. And I don't want money to win with them. And I don't want money to win with you either. But who cares what I think? Your heavenly father, your heavenly father doesn't want money to win either. I don't want my kids to grow up having to choose between money or their personal peace. I don't want them to prioritize money over their marriages. I don't want them to prioritize stuff and the acquisition of stuff over their health or over their children, which will be my grandchildren. I don't want them to be slaves to consumption. I want them to have stuff. I don't want their stuff to have them. That's why I did that. It has nothing to do with the church getting their money or the church getting your money. Jesus Best we can tell, never, and I don't get any ideas, never took up an offering. (laughs) I don't want my kids and I don't want you to be slaves to consumption. I want them to own their stuff. I don't want their stuff to own them. So this is what it looks like. You give first, you save second, and you live on the rest. That's how you do it. So here's what Jesus said. He said, no one can serve. No one can serve two masters. You'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then a few minutes later in the same sermon, he says this. He says, so in light of that, do not worry saying, what are we gonna eat? Now, you know, we don't worry about what we're gonna eat, but that's because we have refrigeration. Back in those days, the only thing that kept without, the only thing that they could keep for very long was um, grain and wine, grain and wine. That's it, everything else rotted and spoiled. What are we gonna eat? What are we gonna drink? What uh, eat? What are, what are we gonna eat? What are we gonna drink? What are we gonna wear? Clothes were extremely, extremely expensive. And Jesus is saying, look, I know you think about this stuff all the time. I know your inclination is to worry about it all the time, to think about it all the time. He says, but I don't want you to do that. And here's why. Because when you worry, 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 worry about the future, here's what you're going to do with your hands and your heart. You're going to close them. And if you're going to be my follower, you cannot live your life with closed hands. 
and a closed heart. He says, besides that, for the pagans run after all these things. You don't want to be a pagan, do you? Now, the word pagan, we, we use this term in a completely different context, different way than Jesus meant it. A pagan in the first century was basically anybody that believed in the gods, plural, as opposed to one God. So for the Jewish people, everybody other than the Jews, they were all pagans because they believed in the gods. And the gods could care less about people. The gods toyed with people. The gods manipulated people. The gods played with people. The gods did not care about people. The gods were not concerned about people. So the pagans were constantly trying to bribe the gods to do their bidding, sacrifice animals, some some cases sacrifice children, sacrifice whatever we got to sacrifice in order to get the gods to do our bidding. And Jesus says, look, if you worry, 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 you're living like the pagans that that don't have gods who care anything about them. They don't believe there's a personal God that's actually involved in their life. And your heavenly father, and this is, this is the game changer right here. And besides, your heavenly father knows that you need all that stuff. Now, here's the thing, Christians. Do you believe that? Jesus said it, not me. Jesus said to his audience that our heavenly, what did he call him? What are we supposed to call him again? Oh yeah, father, that's it. That our heavenly father knows what we need. If your heavenly father knows what you need, do you need to worry? And Jesus says, no. And I'm telling you, the moment you wrap your heart and your belief system around the fact that God knows what you need, you have certain, you have in that moment earned the opportunity and the right to keep your hands wide open. But he says, but, 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 but instead of worrying, instead of hoarding, instead of consuming, here's what I want you to do. And now he says, get your pen and paper out. Here's the plan. Here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're not going to worry anymore. Here's how you're going to know that I'm care. Here's how you're going to know I'm involved, but seek first. That is put first, reprioritize, but seek first. That's reorder, rearrange, rethink, but seek first. And then he refers to his father in heaven, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, this word just throws us off every time because we don't live in a kingdom. We don't even think there should be kingdoms. We, we don't get kingdom. Here's what Jesus is saying. And this is so, so, so important. He's saying, I want you, I want you to seek the kingdom of my father and my father's kingdom is an other's first kingdom. If you're gonna follow me, it's about others first. He is an others first king who dwells and has developed and is creating an others first kingdom. And the reason it's his righteousness is because Jesus taught throughout his ministry that what's right for other people is what's right. What's best for other people is what's best. That the kingdom of God is an others first kingdom that's all about doing right for other people. And so Jesus says, look, if you're gonna invite me into that area of your life, if you're gonna ask me to be in control of your finances, you need to know where this is gonna take you. This is gonna take you to others' firstness. One day, Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. It's, it's toward the end of his ministry. 
On the way to Jerusalem, his guys are going along. They don't want to go because they know that he's probably going to be arrested. And if he's arrested, they'll get arrested. It's just a bad day altogether. But they're hoping, they're thinking, well, maybe he's not going to get arrested. Maybe he's going to get there and go, da-da-da-da, and rip off his rabbi robe. And it's going to have, you know, big M, Messiah, you know, and he's going to take over. They're going to run Rome off. The Pharisees are going to say, oh, we're so sorry. And, and you know, Jesus is going to take the temple mount. And may, maybe this is the moment we've all been waiting for. So they're having this conversation behind Jesus about, okay, so when Jesus takes his throne, when he's the new king of Israel, you know, what about those little thrones? Who's going to be on the left? Who's going to be on the right? Who's going to be close to the guy? So they're arguing about which one of them is going to be on the left or the right. Jesus overhears this. So he turns around and he says, all right, time out. Everybody under the sycamore tree, have a seat. We got to talk. I made that part up, but he has them. He stops. He stops on the way to Jerusalem. This is like a big, big deal. And he says, okay, let's go over this one more time. My kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. He says, you know, come on, you've been around. You know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles, lord it over them. It's a little Greek term that means that uses their power selfishly, an abuse of power. He says, you know, the Gentile rulers, they abuse their power. They leverage their power for their own benefit and their high officials do the same thing. They exercise authority over them. And again, this is such a bland way of translating this. His point was, you know how it works in the world. Whoever gets in charge, they're in charge and everybody else has to do whatever they're charged to do. You know how this works. And they're like, yeah, we know how it works. That's why we want to be number two and number three, because you're number one. And you know, that's exactly, we want to be in charge. And then Jesus looks at him in the eye and he says, this is so powerful. He says, not so with you. Not so with you. You're gonna be part of my gang. You wanna be part of my kingdom. You wanna be part of my father's kingdom. That's not how it works there. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great. Hey guys, now which one of y'all wanna be great? Come on, they're all like, that's what we're doing. I wanna be great. He goes, okay, you wanna be great? then pay attention. If you want to be a great, then you must become the servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. You want to be great in my kingdom? You want to be great in my economy? You want to be great in the world that I'm here to create? Then you don't try to get in first place. You look for a way to get in last place and serve everybody else along the way. And before they could raise an objection, he says, for, and here's a verse every Christian should memorize. For even the son of man, talking about himself, even the son of man did not come to be served, guys. Even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. They cringed when he said this and to give his life a ransom for many. Hey guys, you think you're better than me? No, Jesus, you're Jesus. Okay, no, we're not better than you. Then get in the back of the line because that's where I'm headed. That's why we're going to Jerusalem. I'm about to do for the whole world what I'm gonna turn around and ask the whole world to do for one another. My friends, that changed the world. It could change the world again. Selflessness would solve everything. Selflessness would solve everything. Selflessness would solve everything. Welcome to the kingdom of God. But seek first 
his kingdom and his righteousness. And then relax because all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, if you'll put others first in your finances as evidence of the fact that you put God first, you've invited God in. When you put other people, when you put what God is up to in the world first in your finances, that's an invitation because what you've done when you put God first is you're saying, God, you first, me second. He says, hey, that's the, that's the combination. That's the magic code. That's my kingdom. That's what I'm all about. Remember the most famous verse in the whole Bible? For God, I'll let you fill in the blank. For God so loved the world that he, that he gave, that he gave, that he gave. He says, welcome to my kingdom. He said, and. I will take care of you because I know what you need. The way that you make sure you have your money, but your money doesn't have you, is you seek first with your money, the kingdom of God. This is why since I was a kid, I have always tithed off the top to my local church. Church didn't need my money. I don't know if needed my money or not, actually. It wasn't in my business. That wasn't why I did it. That's why when we um, came up with these, our apps, all of our campuses have apps, you know, you can go online. I, at first I wasn't so sure because I kind of like put my check in the bucket, but apparently not many people do. You can put that bucket on your head, wear it around, okay? There's hardly anything in the bucket. In fact, some of you are like, how do they keep this place going? There is nothing in that bucket. It's because you're surrounded by some very generous people who've done what I did. And when we came up with automated giving, I finally dawned on me, this is the greatest thing ever because I know when I get paid, I get paid twice a month. And I figured it out to where I have automated my giving so that the, this is just me, the very first dollars that come out of that paycheck go to your church and my church. I love that. This is my way of saying, God, you know what you're up to first, I'll figure it out. God, you first, me second. You first, me second. It's easy to pray, oh God, you're the most important thing in my life. And he's like, show me the money. No, he's not really that way. So it's like, but isn't it easy? It's like, oh God, I love you. And I want to sing some songs. And I even got, you know, I even downloaded one of them. You know, it's like, oh, I love you, love you, love you. God's going, come on, come on. Hey, hey, open your eyes, open your eyes. Quit being so holy. Look, you and I know how this works. The chief competitor of your heart isn't what kind of music you listen to. The chief competitor for your heart is your stuff. When you put me first with your stuff, when you put other people first with your stuff and your money, then I'll know. And it's not because I need it. It's because I love you and I know what's best for you. This is how you guard your heart. This is how you, dis- this is how you set up guardrails for yourself. You give first, you save second and you live on the rest. You give first, you save second, and then you live on the rest. So here's what I want you to do. If you're a Christian, you you really gotta do this, okay? If you're not a Christian, you should do it anyway. I promise you, even if you're not a Christian, six months from now, a year from now, you'll be like, that was the greatest financial decision I ever made. You need to pick a percentage of your income You need to pick a percentage ahead of time and just decide it's going away as soon as you get it. Whatever the percentage is, you don't need to start with 10% if that's too big of a jump, but don't go lower than five. You won't even know anything happened, okay? But you need to pick a percentage and give it first. And if you're a Christian, you gotta fund what God's doing all over the world and everybody should have a plan for how they plan to support their local church. I mean, even if you don't go to church, you should support some church because one day you're gonna need a church and they're gonna be there for you because somebody funded it. Okay. So everybody should have a plan for how they support their local church. Pick a percentage and figure out a way to get that percentage out of your world into someone else's world before you spend the next dime. 
Pick, pick a one or two nonprofits, two charities that you love, somebody you know that's doing stuff that's near and dear to your heart with children or foster kids or education or whatever it is. And listen, listen. And don't wait to be asked. That's what the pagans do. It is. That's what everybody gives when there's an emergency. Be better than that. Find organizations you love and start sending them money every single month, regardless of whether or not there's an emergency, regardless of whether or not they ask. And then when there's an emergency, you'll have been there before the emergency. Don't wait to be asked. Pick a percentage of your money, decide where it's going and let it go. And then save. This is also helping the people in the future because you don't want your kids or grandkids to have to take care of you, right? So this is a way of loving other people is by preparing for your own future. And then consume your heart out. Just live on the rest. This is how you stay between the guardrails. And this is how you guard against, not financial disaster. This is how you guard against greed. And that's how you ensure that you have your money, but that your money never has you. Now, I can't finish a message like this without saying something to all of you. And that's this, thank you. The reason we're able to do what we do all over the city and all over the country and all over the world, we're about to come up on Be Rich in a few months. Um, It's because of your extraordinary generosity. I feel a little bit when I preach a message like this, like I'm preaching to the choir because so many of you get this. And so many of you have been so engaged and many of you who watch our live stream, you aren't even able to show up in the building oftentimes and you give online to help us take these messages all over the world. So I don't want to appear or sound ungrateful because so many of you like me were either raised to do this or you took a chance and a few years ago, you became a percentage giver. So I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for those of you who've automated your giving as well. Your automated giving like I do and like our family does is what allows us to plan better, to stay within budget and to continue to create great churches that people love to attend. And last thing, thank you for those of you who've gone online and have given to Samaritan's Purse and Convoy of Hope to help our friends in Texas, in Louisiana. It was easy for you to be generous because you're generous people, but let me tell you the best news. Because of your generosity at our churches and because of our strategic partners that we work with um, all over the country and because of our intersect partners all over the city, because of that, you don't know this because you don't have time to keep up with all this stuff. You You have actually been funding organizations that will help the folks in Louisiana and Texas. You have already been funding organizations before there was a disaster because of your generosity. You have sought first someone else's welfare over your own. And that, my friend, is what the kingdom of God is all, all, all about. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.